those kind of mentalities, the avoiding conflict, the trying to be positive, uh, it puts us in a bad place because the power of positive thinking and good vibes only uh, ultimately aren't good for our mental or our emotional health uh, because life is difficult. Uh, and uh, if you suppress or fail to grapple with the difficulty of life, the reality of suffering, uh, the waves of pain that come from living in a broken and sinful world, you won't be in a good place. But it's also not good theologically because it can blind us to error when, when all we want is to, is to keep a message that, um, that, that's just positive and appealing to the masses and we're not willing uh, to, to wade in to, to discern what is true and what is right and to confront what is wrong and what is false. We can blind, be blind to errors or even averse to thinking deeply about what's true in accordance with God's word. Now, none of us ultimately want this. No, none of us want a doctor who only does well checks, right? You, you want your doctor there when you're sick, when you're in need. And you need that doctor to confront you with the reality of what you're facing and what your body is experiencing. None of us want a mechanic who only rotates the tires, but who doesn't tell you that the thread on your tire is worn down to the wire and you're in danger of driving in the road, right? Um, well, I had that experience once uh, where uh, I went, we were on a road trip, and I had to go uh, get my tires fixed, and he said, I don't know who changed your tires last, which was just before the road trip, um, but you're, you're like on the last leg, uh, to, to confuse metaphors, uh, of your car. Like, you need all of your tires changed. You don't want a mechanic who doesn't tell you the truth about your car. As a side note, you also don't want those mechanics who tell you like 70 additional things that aren't wrong with your car, you know, um, and uh, tell you that you need to fix them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you told me that the last time I was here. <clears throat> we, we need the truth. And I can assure you that you don't want a church or pastors who are willing to believe anything and who have no room to confront what's false and not in line with God's word. And that's what Titus 1, 10 through 16 is about. So um, as you heard this passage read, it moves us into uh, to the substance of the letter. Uh, as Paul is writing to Titus, encouraging him to put what remains in order on the island of Crete. Remember the, the backstory. This is a letter to a church plant. Paul and Titus went to the island of Crete, which had probably about 20 or so towns on the island, and they shared the gospel. They went uh, to and throughout the cities. I don't know exactly how many, but as they went about their work of sharing the gospel, some people believed and trusted in Christ, and there was a need to establish churches. And so Paul is writing to Titus, telling him, put what remains in order, both positively finish the work that we didn't complete, which was establishing these church, churches, but also we need to address some things that are, have already gone wrong. And that's the false teaching that we find in our chapter. Verse 9 uh, kind of provides a transition for us because Paul, uh, as a first priority, he says what we need in the churches is to have faithful leaders, pastors, who are qualified according to the scriptures and uh, whose um, character is in line with God's word and who are able to teach. Verse 9 says, as our transition, the pastor must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also, here it is, to rebuke those who contradict it. The, the pastor is to hold firm to the trustworthy word so that this is the part of the work that a pastor is to do is to exhort, to teach what's in line with sound doctrine. It's a positive work. And, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
to confront what is false and not in line with God's word. Here's what I want us to see in this passage. The church, led by its pastors, must be devoted to sound doctrine and confront false teaching that distorts the gospel. The church, led by its pastors, must be devoted to sound doctrine and confront false teaching that distorts the gospel. We're going to look at this passage and and see the problem uh, that false teaching distorts the gospel. We're going to see it throughout uh, verses 10 through 16. But the the thing I want you to note on the front end uh, is that all false teaching has as its common denominator heretical math. Now, I know some of you uh, just took a break from studying to come here, and some of you haven't thought about math since you finished college. Um, But let me explain what I mean by heretical math. Heretical math is when anything is added to or subtracted from the gospel. All false teaching at its core has this heretical math, taking away from the gospel or adding to the gospel. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage. I, 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 want, to see, I want us to see four ways uh, that false teaching distorts the gospel. The first step is in verse 10, and it's that we distort the gospel when we make it about our performance. Notice uh, what Paul says about these false teachers. He says, they, uh, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And here's an important uh, descriptor, especially those of the circumcision party. So Paul characterizes the false teachers in three different ways, and then he, he kind of labels them. He tells us what their uh, kind of identity is, so to speak. They're insubordinate or rebellious. Uh, they reject authority, or worse yet, they claim to be their own authority, is what he says. And there's empty talk. Uh, there's talk without substance, and it proves itself to be without substance in that it deceives, he says. They're deceivers, leading people away from what is true. And ultimately, he labels them as the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party, this isn't the first time that we see this in the, in the Gospels. In the early church, there was a, a group uh, from a Jewish background who believed, yes, you needed to believe in Jesus, but that wasn't sufficient. You also needed to embrace Jewish customs, particularly purity, rituals, and commands that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, is what Paul teaches and even Jesus himself would teach that these things have been fulfilled in Christ but they're saying no you need Jesus plus you need to conform to this particular Jewish way of life and look in uh, Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 we see uh, this circumcision party and how they were influential they they even tripped up uh, people like the apostle Peter and some others who are with them it says when Cephas came to Antioch Paul says I opposed him to his face Because he stood condemned, for certain men came from James, that's speaking of James and the the church at Jerusalem, and when they came to Antioch, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when the group came, he drew back and he separated himself from them, fearing, here it is, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct, listen to this, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is the problem with the circumcision party. They're adding to trust in Christ, faith in Christ, the keeping of these rituals and these uh, ceremonial laws was not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. 
And I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was the the issue in the early church. If you look at Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, it was settled that, that all it takes to be saved, here's the radical idea, the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, it was there but hard to see, that's become fully clear and available to us today, is that Jew and Gentile are united in Christ, through faith in Christ and His work on the cross. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And to add to that is to make the gospel about our performance. And if you want to, if you want to overwhelm and burden a person when it comes to thinking about Christianity, tell them a Jesus plus gospel. A gospel that says believe in Jesus and oh yeah, your performance is really important. The radical truth about the gospel is that we are not saved by anything that we can do in and of ourselves, but we're saved by the completed work of Jesus Christ. Performance-based Christianity distorts the gloriously freeing and forgiving grace of God that's found in Jesus. So you mean when I believe in Jesus, I'm forgiven? I'm saved? There's nothing that I have to complete the work that Christ has done is sufficient for my salvation? That's exactly what I'm saying. When Jesus on the cross yelled, it is finished, that means that there's nothing that you or I need to do to add to the finished work of Christ. And Paul was so adamant about this because to to claim that you needed to be circumcised or to keep the ceremonial law is to distort the whole beauty of the gospel, to distort the whole truth of the gospel that says you can't save yourself only by throwing yourself at the grace and mercy of God can you be saved. And do you know that this is exactly what the Old Testament teaches? It's not like this came along and this is what Jesus taught. This is, this is what we see in the Old Testament. We've always been saved by grace through faith in God's promise. In the Old Testament, it was the promise of the Savior to come. In the New Testament, it's looking back on the Savior that came and hung on the cross and rose from the dead and has promised to come again. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He rescued them by His grace. And then He gave them the law to show them how to live as His people. To obey Him can only be fueled by grace. But if we mix it up, if we make it about our performance to earn His grace, will burn out, will be defeated by discouragement and despair. The gospel frees us from our sin, and it's not about our performance. And that's exactly what the circumcision party was doing, making our Christian faith about performance. This is the heart of legalism. Jesus plus religious ritual always <clears throat> will lead us uh, to a place of despair. A way you could say it, if you want to remember it this way, a Jesus plus theology will always end up minus Jesus. If you try to add anything to the finished work of Christ, you'll end up taking away Jesus. We become Christians by faith in Christ. We stay Christians by God's grace through faith in Christ. He keeps us in His hands.
Performance-based Christianity is a distortion of the gospel. And Paul's pretty clear that we shouldn't add anything to the gospel. But he continues, and we see that we distort the gospel when we use it for personal gain. He presses in a little further into what's particularly happening here. There's, there's not a whole lot in this passage particularly where he tells us exactly what they are saying. We piece it together by looking at this reference to the circumcision party and in verse 14 in a minute we'll see some of the particulars of what they were teaching. But there's a particular character that's true of this false teaching. And part of it we see in verse 11 when it says they must be silenced. We'll come to the response to this at the end. It says they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching. Here's his for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. I love the uh, King James uh, version. It calls this filthy lucre. Um, <clears throat> that just sounds fun to say. So uh, just kind of uh, put that away in your vocabulary bank sometime this week. Uh, use filthy lucre. Um, they, they do this, it says, for shameful gain. Speaking of their motive. It doesn't tell us what went down, uh, how they did this what kind of scheme they had to get money um, <clears throat> but uh, it's it's often been said that uh, religion and politics are two of the best ways to to get money uh, it, it's a distortion uh, of what uh, the Christian faith should be and Paul particularly throughout his ministry went to great lengths to talk about how he, he conducted his ministry and shared the gospel in such a way that nobody would misunderstand or misconstrue what his motives were. And so most likely what was happening here, as these teachers were going about, it's, it talks about families, but the house was also the place where the church met. So most likely they're going about from church gathering to church gathering that was meeting in homes. And what would happen is they would come, most likely they would be a good speaker, they would do their spiel, uh, and then they would say, hey, before I... Uh, you know, before I go on your way out, if you would, uh, make sure to, to drop a coin in the coffer, if you will, uh, to, to pay the bills. And, and it seems that Paul is pointing uh, to this motive and this practice, and even builds on this by noting in verse 12, one of the Cretans, um, <clears throat> Epimenides was a Cretan poet uh, who described the Cretans in this way. He said they're they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's a pretty harsh statement to make. Um, a stereotype, no doubt, of these Cretans. And he says, these false teachers live up to that stereotype. These false teachers, he says, uh, are <clears throat> filled with self-indulgent desires, driven by their passions, hoping to gain from the labor of others. And this is a distortion of the gospel. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he said, Remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, and speaking of his job as tent maker, that we might not burden any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul says, examine our life. We're free from ulterior motive. We didn't seek to share the gospel from you so we could get something from you, but instead we did it freely. And Paul says... Elsewhere in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy 6, as we think about money and it's, uh, it's the way in which it can grip our hearts. Listen, this isn't just true uh, of, uh, of those within ministry or, as I mentioned earlier, somehow politics. This is true upon every single heart. You don't have to be rich to be controlled by money. You can be controlled by the desire to have money. And Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 6-10, through 10, he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
We brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. No U-Hauls on the back of hearses, right? Uh, There's nothing that we can take with us. If we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. But those who, here it is, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He doesn't say that money's the problem. He doesn't say that wealth is the problem. He says that it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's a distortion of the gospel to use it for personal gain. And yet, this is what permeates even our own culture. Not only is performance-based Christianity easy to creep in that says you need to do these things and this to, to, to live up before God, but there's a belief that we can use our faith to, to advance materially. This is what's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel makes us think that we can use God to achieve our ends. As we can use God as a means to our end, when in reality, God is the end for which we were created to glorify and enjoy forever. Just like performance-based Christianity puts grace out of place, so in the same way, prosperity, uh, gospel, makes us think that we can use God as a means to an end rather than seeing Him as the end for which we were created. Now, this is true in a lot of different ways, and, and Uh, I appreciated these uh, characteristics. John Piper uh, was asked a question. He's got this podcast called Ask Pastor John. He was asked the question of how you you can spot the prosperity gospel in someone's preaching. One is they probably don't preach about uh, the prosperity gospel, but uh, he he listed a few different things that you can... uh, you should be aware of, uh, and if you're uh, noticing these characteristics or the lack of these characteristics, you should, you should pay attention. There's no robust teaching about the doctrine of suffering. If, if you have a gospel that's about a means to your end, then there's really no room to talk about suffering and trials other than as a bump on the road to your success and your best life now. Uh, these, these prosperity gospel preachers are the, are the ones who get the prime time spots on TBN uh, <clears throat> who tell you that God wants your best and wants you to be healthy and wealthy the prosperity gospel has no clear call to deny yourself there's no room for the teaching of Jesus that says come and follow me deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me there's often a lack of serious exposition Uh, particularly a lack of wrestling with tensions in the scriptures. Yes, God uh, says that money should be used as a blessing, that if if those who are rich, they should use their wealth to serve God's purposes. The Bible isn't averse to those things, but yet it has this tension that talks about the love of money, that it forces us to wrestle with these things and, and evaluate our hearts and measure our hearts. Often prosperity gospels. This is the the preachers of L.A. Their exorbitant lifestyles speak to a a using of the gospel as a means to an end. And at the end of the day, just too much self. Too much self. 
It's about me and my success. It's about you and your success. If there's a gospel that tells you it's really about you and what God wants to do for you and through you, that's not the gospel that's in here. The gospel that's in here is way better. Because it's about God. And when we find our life in Him, we find more than we could ever imagine. We distort the gospel when it is used for our personal gain. We also, as Paul continues, distort the gospel when we reject the truth. Look in verses 13 through 14. After he says the Cretan poet's testimony is true in reference to these false teachers, he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He uses a strong word here, that they have to be rebuked and just as we were told that it was the responsibility of the pastor in verse 9 to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it, here he's, he's saying the same thing. But the reason they must be rebuked, that sounds so offensive, so in your face, is not because you want to hurt them and own them. We'll come back to that. It's not because you have some ulterior motive that you really want to show people up. No, it's you confront, you rebuke because they're departing from the truth. And that's what it says in verse 14. You do this because they should be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves, he says, to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Throughout the book of Titus, we see uh, the importance of the truth. In verse 9, we see that pastors are to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. That we're to, uh, to understand in verses 11 through 14 the, the grace of God that brings salvation for all people. And in, in, in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, we're to uh, hold fast to and be faithful to the loving kindness of God who saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So rather than the truth of the gospel and apostolic teaching, these false teachers uh, are, are going away into what it says is Jewish myths and the commands of people, the commands of men. Paul, Paul isn't talking about a different group here. He's pressing in and referencing the same group that we saw in verse 10, the circumcision party. <clears throat> and, and what he's emphasizing is ritual observance. Most likely it talks about Jewish myths, these ritual observance of the Jewish law. <clears throat> and, and like the Pharisees, honestly, in the ministry of Jesus, if you read through uh, the Gospels as Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, they put, they put rules around the, the rules and commands that God gave us. Uh, kind of a, uh, a, a sort of extra level of protection, right? So if uh, you know, if, if the, the Sabbath would tell you that you must rest and not do any work, uh, the Pharisees would put up extra rules uh, just so in case you broke that rule, you didn't actually break the law, right? Like so if the, if the boundary is the road, uh, we, would, we would set the fence up like 50 yards back before you got to the road. So if you jumped over the fence, you still hadn't broken God's command. It was this extra protection. But what it was doing though from the desire to, to maintain purity, what it was ultimately doing was adding to the commands of God, distorting those commands, rejecting the truth in addition to erect additional commands, was to reject the truth that God had already given us. 
They went beyond what the scriptures commanded in order to ensure external purity. Understand clearly, to add to the scriptures, to add to what God has said, is to depart from what God has said. To add to the scriptures is to depart from the scriptures. To depart from the source of our truth is to undercut the very basis of the gospel. Paul's sharp command to rebuke them sharply was because they were departing from the truth. Replacing the source of our truth being in God and His apostolic word to being in the commands of men. This is what the the Apostles' Creed is all about. It was a summary statement of what the apostles taught in the New Testament for the early church to hold fast to the truth about who Jesus is, to, to the Trinitarian nature of God, to the virgin birth, to His resurrection, to His return, to the Holy Spirit, to the church. These things are, are to be what we hold fast to. Let me tell you a story about three, three different people. We'll call them Joe, Charles, and Mary. <clears throat> All three of them grew up in churches, different denominations, a number of them Presbyterian and uh, Methodist. <clears throat> but along the way, uh, they, they had either questions or their family kind of drifted away from the church. They were disillusioned, perhaps struggled with the teachings of the church. <clears throat> and there was no pastor there to answer questions, perhaps to push back sometimes about some false things that were believed. <clears throat> and they never, they never returned to the church. And in departing from the truth, they found new sources of truth. Joe was Joseph Smith, who founded Mormonism. Charles was Charles Taze Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mary was Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the Church of Christian Science. All of them departed from the truth, set up new sources of truth, saw themselves as restoring Christianity, seeking to make it more pure. Do you, do you see, do you see what, what it's connected to? Wanting ritual purity, wanting to restore the purity of the church. But they said we need new truth. God's revealed himself in a new way. And friends, if any new way from God, new revelation from God, contradicts the revelation that he's already given us, it's not from God. And in, in every single one of those situations, there's a book that's been added, there's a distortion, an understanding of the person of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the, the very character of the Trinity, which is the foundation of the Christian faith, a departure of the truth distorts the gospel. And we can do this today. You think, well, now we're calling names. <clears throat> we do this thing, we, we, we seek to be clear on the truth because we want to lovingly encourage God's people to be sound in the faith, to know what is right and what is wrong. And, and how needed this is today in so many conversations that, have ha that are had in our culture. Questioning Christianity about this or that. Questions about what we should believe and not believe. And, and the most important thing as God's people 
is to be a people who are grounded in God's word. To know that there is a source of truth. And if we depart from that source of truth, we depart from the very foundation of the gospel. So we distort the gospel when we depart from the source of its truth. And finally, we distort the gospel when we refuse the transformation that it brings. We distort the gospel when we refuse the transformation that it brings. You see what it says there in verses 15 through 16. It says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, just like the Pharisees, these this group of the circumcision party prized external and ritual purity above true purity, which is internal and comes from the the work that God does within the heart and produces within it uh, a morality, a changed behavior, a changed life. Instead, their focus was upon the external. It's, It's just like what Jesus said in Luke 11. Write down Luke 11, 42 through 44. Jesus said, Woe to you Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious people and, and here's, here's the thing that, that I think is hard for us to get 